this time on Chew Diligence. From the farmhouse and Black Sheep Plus Market, Chef Michael Faust. I'm an artist in food, and I love food. But to be able to do what I do, I need great farmers to give me the, would we say, the colors for the paintings. The way that we eat, what goes into our body is who we are. Uh, It's really kind of simple. To move forward is how do we clear that up? How do we make it transparent? How do you know exactly where your food came from? On this episode of Chew Diligence, Jill and I are so excited to have Michael Faust joining us in the podcast studio. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are so excited to talk about everything you have going on. Uh, But first, the food. Jill, where have you been eating? Well, I actually went um, to sample the menu, the uh, new fall menu at the Kaufman Center for the Performing Arts. And uh, Laura Comer is the uh, executive chef there, and she was recently named by the Greater Kansas City Restaurant Association as the Chef of the Year. Oh, wow. And I can see why. Beautiful plates. Beautiful plates with a lot of local food on them. I always felt like that would make such a lovely, complete evening going to see something and then going to eat there, too. Well, and you can go, and here's the great thing. She has a prefix menu, uh, three courses, $37. Wow. Um, You can get it almost every before every performance except on Sundays. So check in before you go, but uh, very impressive. Is it only before a performance or is it, do they have hours of their own? Do you know? I think there's some hours um, of their own as well. Might look on the website. Um, They welcome people who are not going to performances to eat there as well. So um, obviously they've got to have a good span of hours, but I don't know what they are. Sorry. No, I, it sounds Should've amazing. Should have checked them out. What a pretty setting. It was beautiful. And um, Laura has an art background, so the plates are just really pretty. Um, and you can tell she's really comfortable in that new space. It's it's beautiful. They've also bumped up the bar uh, a bit. Um, so more cocktails. They had a smoky cocktail with a smoking gun, uh, you know, where you hold uh, – glass enclosure over and pump in a little bit of smoky flavor. Um, So lots of fun things going on at the bar as well. That's super fun. Uh, I had an experiment a couple days ago where I was driving around going, what is close and barbecue I haven't had in a minute? And I've always loved LC's and I think their Burton ends are fabulous. So my car found its way over there for me and the baby. And I walked in and said, I want brisket and burnt ends. And they said, okay, mixed plate for you. I said, all right. And I want fries. And I didn't know the mixed plate was, oh my goodness, $25 (laughs) worth of fantastic barbecue. Quite a mix. (laughs) Brisket with the most perfect proportion of fat attached that was so juicy and wonderful. Um, Went home and said to my husband, you're going to have to help me with this because it's a pretty large portion, but 100% worth it. Absolutely. Now, did you look at the pit while you were there? Did you notice? What about it? Well, that's a Bill Cheney pit. Yeah, I know, right? Bill was on one of our barbecue technology episodes. And I love that it is, I mean, what do you think, a foot and a half behind the register? Yeah, very close. You could almost burn yourself. (laughs) And they open it up and close it all day long. You know, then this was one of the few times I'd walked in and hadn't seen uh, Elsie sitting in the chair at the table. Because I've always loved that. I loved being able to see him working. Well, I wonder if he was out hunting. Oh, maybe. He likes to go hunting. So that's usually 
one of the few times he's not there. <laughs> With his chair. You know it's his chair. It is his office, I think he calls it. Mm-hmm. I love that. Hey, Michael, when you go out to eat at a place that is not one of your fine establishments, where do you go? Usually um, I try to eat a little bit more ethnic, uh, ethnic foods, stuff that I, I'm not real comfortable cooking um, or just trying to figure out and learn how to cook. Mm. So, you know, lately we've been going to, um, well, one of our favorites is ABC uh, Cafe out on 87th Street. You that's know, pretty close to my house. I think anybody Lenexa? who does chicken uh-huh. feet. Lenexa. It does do chicken. No, help me out here. Chefs love this place, and they go frequently. I'm still trying to figure out what I should order. Help me figure out, besides the chicken feet, which I've tried and I'm kind of ambivalent about, because there's not a lot of meat on them. Mm. Yeah, it's more for the gelatin and the flavor. Okay. You know, um, you're not going to get full on chicken feet. So just kind of <laughs> kind of uh, like an amuse-bouche? Yeah, al- almost, yeah, as a part of the meal. You know, kind of switch up those flavors where you get that, that unctuous, that, that fatty. Um, but it's the chicken fatty instead of what we're used to as the beef or the pork fatty. Right. Yeah. So what do you order, though, besides the chicken feet? You know, we do a lot of the dim sum. Oh, so okay. I, I like sampling you know i'm just like you give me the mixed plate Uh, (laughs) we were just kind of discussing the price sometimes when chefs go out we don't really think about price we just think about what we want to eat and it's usually i want to taste a lot of different things that somebody's doing so um dim sum is great over there and it gives us an opportunity to try a lot of different stuff uh plus luckily we, we we're getting to know them a little bit so um there's a lot of Items that I can't pronounce that uh, we, we've been getting, and, and they've been helping me with my pronunciations. Of, uh, and so they know you're a chef when you come in. Have you I revealed that I don't to know them? If or we've they ever just... discussed that? Okay, so yeah. you're just you're just no, I'm a, a fan, a fan, and yeah. and I love that. Yeah, just one of the one of the you know everyday guys. Do you ever walk in and say, "Tell me the best thing to order"? You know. Well, uh, yeah, sometimes. Uh, They'll send a couple of things out for mm. us, you know, and, and it wasn't something that I saw on the menu or didn't recognize. And that's that's nice. Well, I think you have to be a fan and I should probably um, get get in that mode because when I've gone in, it's been they're very fast there. They turn tables really fast. And so they hand you the laminated menu, which has tons of things. And I sat there trying very hard to consider with my whole eating crew what we were going to be eating, and it was just not, we were not moving at a fast enough clip. <laughs> um, so I got to learn, I got to learn sort of like the soup Nazi, which I did once in New York as well. And um, you you have to know, I think, before you go in there what you're going to order. So I maybe I'll study it online before well, I try the next prepared. time. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some cultural differences in the way that we dine and in the way that other other places in the world dine. So, you know, it, it's kind of nice when you get into a place that is a little bit more authentic. Um, you know, Josh, I'm doing ramen down there at Columbus Park. He kind of got a little bit of feedback for having people need to get through there a little bit faster and, and understanding the ramen, uh, the way People do ramen, you right? Know, hmm. As a, a almost a, a quick, right? 
It's fast food. Yeah, exactly. So you can't just sit there all day long and read the menu and chat with your friend. I did have a real awareness when I went there as well that, um, you know, it was it was time time to move on. They were bringing us our check. And it culturally speaking, that is really interesting because my husband is Brazilian and they sit at the table for hours and mm-hmm. hours and they can't understand why Americans get up from the table you know, to ask for the check, with, right? Within 30 minutes, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, right. um, if you go to a Brazilian steakhouse, you're going to sit there for at least three hours. Yeah. That's just a given, but that almost never happens here. So I guess mm. I just need to find my my comfort zone <laughs> <laughs> over at ABC. Uh, I, I think just, you know, give it give it a couple more tries. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's got to be good if all the chefs are there on Sunday. As soon yeah. as you said ABC, I went, I've seen a lot of people going. A lot of chefs. And it's one of their favorite hangouts. Yeah, hmm. You know, and there's a few other places, but sometimes you don't want to give those up yet. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we're going to twist your arm. What? What else? One more. Well, I, I, th- I think the LC's by far. Mm. Uh, we were just discussing that, but that, that's not the secret one. Um, I want to give them a couple more weeks to get some things under the belt. Oh, okay. You're going to whisper it in my ear before you leave, correct? I'm going to let you know. Okay. Um, But they're they're doing some pretty neat things. Uh, I don't think that if we pushed on them right now, it would be a good thing. I gotcha. I'm so intrigued. I can't wait. I am. And that's part of the intrigue, too. (laughs) You build it up. That's right. You build it up. Uh, Build the buzz. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you have a lot of buzz going on right now, Michael. You've got, uh, in addition to Farmhouse, you have a new place. Yeah, we've got uh, a place on 39th Street, uh, Black Sheep Plus Market. So it's a farm-to-table diner. With the Farmhouse, we were doing uh, farm-to-table kind of not, I wouldn't say upper end or anything like that, but um, a a different price point. Mm. Uh, Whereas a diner, we can run the whole menu all day long, and you can get... uh, well, you can get breakfast at nine o'clock at night. Lindsay already is ready for breakfast. That's one. Yes. Of her, that's her favorite meal. So she noticed that <laughs> you had breakfast. Um, talk a little bit about the farm to table movement because you locally, because you have been one of the earliest and I would say longest practitioners of this. And uh, you and I have been working a lot lately with Pal Gardens because you have this, and you're wearing a cultivate t-shirt as well today you are very supportive of the local farm slash horticulture community um well uh, you know it you can look at it in many different ways of why i'm interested in it one i'm an artist in food and, and i love food but to be able to do what i do i need great farmers to give me the would we say the colors for the paintings mm-hmm we we need all these local farmers to be able to curate all, all the tools or all of the the means for us to build our great dishes. Without them, we're kind of stuck using the same color blue or the same color red. And as we know, you you use those same things, you forget what the true colors truly were. And that's one of the reasons why we work with our farmers is, one, it it strengthens our community. We know what's gone into the food, so there's transparency in the food. 
there's no fillers or the chemicals or anything. Um, but there's a whole whole lot of, into that question um, from me being wanting to use other things that you can't find off off the the grocery store shelves as to me wanting future generations to have the same ability. So farm to table for anyone who's coming to sort of this as a newbie, you know, that is things that are grown locally, um, sustainably, hopefully, sometimes organically, but not always. Um, and getting that supply chain to shrink a little bit so that you're closer. So you actually know the farmers who are producing the food that you get to work with as an artist and then serve to somebody like me, a diner. Um, did you did you know all the years ago when you opened Farmhouse that you were part of a movement or did, it was it just an, the way you like to cook? Actually, I was pretty blessed. That, that was the way I like to cook. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was brought up under chefs that allowed me to cook out of markets or from people coming through the back door offering us their wares and not coming from, say, a, a big food company. So I'm more comfortable, actually, I think, cooking that way than, than not. Uh, if, if you put a catalog of every kind of food in front of me, uh, I get overwhelmed. I, 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 just too much. Just too much. Mother Nature has an incredible way of putting things on the ground that work really well together mm. in the season already. So by following her, I have maybe less ingredients, but more depth of product. I feel that way every time I go to the produce, or it's just grocery shopping in general, but mm-hmm. particularly in the produce section. It's like I'm kind of overwhelmed by the whole thing. I don't know where to begin, which sounds really funny if you've been a food editor telling people what to eat for so many years. Um, I liked when I got into a community-supported agriculture program, not only was I supporting farmers, but it was limiting my choices, which I think, again, sounds kind of weird because you would think that you want everything. And in the United States, we basically want to order anything, anytime. Year-round, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so... Having a truck back up and drop all this stuff off is really the easier way to go here. But what what are we losing when that happens? Well, I think uh, when we start manipulating systems and structures of systems like Mother Nature, um, you're going to lose flavor, longevity, uh, nutrient density. And we could go on and on about what happens when we take something and pick it gas it and travel it as opposed to having it just local here there, there's so many layers of, of economics um you know sustainability that, that we really need to look into in all of these processes that we're, we're getting into and, and and then that word process why are we processing all these foods we're, we're trying to get shelf stable we're trying to get um longevity on these some we shouldn't some we need to just leave alone and let them them be what they are you know lettuces don't travel well well it's kind of a good thing we get fresh lettuce um 
But likewise, with other, other fruits and vegetables, I think that once we get start manipulating systems, we feel like maybe that, that we're doing right by feeding everybody what they want whenever they want. But I think what we're losing hindsight in is what the truth was in, in that vegetable in the first place and, and what the flavor combinations that you could pull from that at that time. How hard is it then to have a consistent menu and, and how often do you change? Do you decide this is going to be this week? Yeah, I mean, we, we just go with what what our farmers bring into us. So it's kind of funny when I say my farmers dictate what my menu is, um, but there's a little caveat on the bottom of my menu saying hey, this can change at any time given mm-hmm. what is brought in. Um, when you cook seasonal uh, and, and again, don't try to manipulate a system to where I need this vegetable at this time, even though it's not produced at this time in this region. We're smarter than that, you know, and, and if you understand what your region holds, and I'm learning every day. I mean, I'm by far not, not don't know at all um, or even close to any of it. <laughs> That's the beauty of Food in general, isn't it? Yeah. You never know. Well, at all. we were just out at Powell, um, and, and I, I was got got lucky enough to go into the gardens with uh, Tomstown, mm. and, and they were looking at botanicals. Yeah, hearty yeah. orange, particularly. The they hearty wanted, orange. Yeah, they wanted to for cocktails uh, for their garden party number five gin. Oh, incredible! Just absolutely incredible. But to sit down and see what they were looking at and how they were looking at it, and then I could sit there and say, well, we can utilize the end results or the middle parts, or how do we collaborate where at the end we have zero or very little waste on this product, but we've come up with three different or two different products from this. So uh, while we were out there gathering, we noticed that 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 orange – which I had no idea existed, <laughs> incredible, um, had such a different depth of aromas and when we broke into it, flavors, that it was like somebody just gave me a new color to paint with. Hmm. This this uh, particular hearty orange is, is pretty, what would you say, Michael, like ping pong yeah, ball or, size? what or? they were saying, ornamental. And ornamental, and they look fuzzy and green mm-hmm. on the outside, and they grow on a very thorny uh, branch, so nobody... Big, big nobody seeds. <laughs> I was going to say, what does it look yield. like inside? Oh, very little yield. Uh, you know, you can see why it's ornamental. Hmm. Okay. You know, in today's function in the industry of food, th- this is a throwaway. But to to somebody who hasn't seen this flavor and didn't realize that citrus grows in the Midwest... Um, I mean, seriously. Just solved a lot of my problems being as local as I am. You know, for a while we were doing this in sumac for for a little bit of those sours and, and to mimic certain flavors. Mm-hmm. Well, now you just gave me a citrus. Wow. Hmm. So, yeah, we're looking at that and going, well, what is on the ground right now? And we're at Powell Garden, so... Lots of stuff's on the ground, right <laughs> which is amazing. I mean, if you haven't been out there lately, gosh, every time I go out there, any time of the year, I'm learning or seeing new things. And luckily, you know, less people, they don't see me taste everything. <laughs> uh, 
Sometimes that's what you're there to do. That's right? the beautiful thing of taking chefs through that garden, though, is they put everything in their mouths. Oh. <laughs> and, and you wonder, oh, was that supposed to go in my mouth? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we had an instance of that where Michael Crane of Crane Brewing actually uh, was following a group of chefs and grabbed at uh, persimmon leaves and it actually made his mouth go numb. I started to get a little worried. Were we going to have to do some? Yeah. Okay. So that same persimmons, uh, I ate the fruit, which I was fine with the fruit, but I took a couple back to the restaurant to show my sous chef and to show the other chefs, you know, we found some uh, um, fennel, Mm. fennel seed that wasn't quite to seed. So it was an immature, had a little bit of tooth to it, but a bright flavor. Mm. So that combination with that orange and, and layering those flavors was like, oh, that's nuts. That's incredible. And, and we kept hunting, and then we found a little bit of sage in there. That persimmons we took back, and a little bit of that leaf mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> may have gotten onto uh, one of the sous chefs. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> and all of a sudden, that chalkiness that it feels like uh, if you haven't had fresh persimmons, it, it will remove all the moisture out of your mouth immediately. <laughs> mm, very astringent. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's just like almost dusty. And then his lip goes numb. And he's like, uh, He's chef, starting to panic. <laughs> <chef>. <laughs> what and I couldn't stop laughing. Uh, so he knew it was okay. Uh, no panic. Because we'd already tried this on somebody else. <laughs> and that was probably me, too. Um but Adventures yeah, being, in the garden, being up man. there, yeah, you just, I honestly, I, I just start tasting things. And, and again, what Mother Nature kind of puts in front of us at that time really seemed to go well together. So that fennel, uh, immature fennel seed, real brightness, pop of that anise, black licorice going with that uh, orange. Mm-hmm. And then just we needed to kind of layer in another flavor so we didn't have two spikes on the end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Through the sage in that pineapple sage. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, I, I took that combination back to, to the farmhouse and to black sheep, and we're now dissecting those flavor combinations, the oils that we can pull from it, and how can we start utilizing these flavor combinations for our fall dishes? Do you think most customers come in and have any idea the the laboratory at work behind some of the dishes? No. Are you okay with that? Yes. Mm. <laughs> Yes, because we have great failures, too. And I don't want them to think that, you know, every time we go into that lab, it's awesome. Uh, n- not at all. But, you know, that's that's the fun part and the incredible part of our jobs. Um, we get to show our audience or, or our guests um, what we do when we can perfect it, not so much as how we get to that perfection point. And, you know, you don't go... I don't think I would come in and sit at your desk and just say, wow, that's amazing. Your typing is impeccable. You're, you're writing Because that it's Im- not, that, for that, one, that. right? So that's... <laughs> Nor to, is mine. To us, that's just the work part. Right, right, right. To, to get to that part. And, and you know, I, th- I think every great chef does that. Hmm. So you opened Farmhouse in 2009? Yeah, 2009. The worst economy that mm. we'd seen or I'd seen. Wow, I would... I would have even said further back, but 2009, yeah, that's yeah. okay. 2009. It's almost a decade. Yeah, wow. Is that wild? It, it, it is because I never expected to really, you know, when, when we opened it up, um, it, it was a really hard time. And, and where we opened up, 
it, it was kind of just one of those crapshoots. It's changed you know? a lot, um, the neighborhood. It, it most certainly has, and thank goodness, uh, some for the better, uh, for sure, for sure. Uh, but being connected to the farmer's market, I, I knew that my supply chain was right next door to me. Hmm. So they didn't have to travel to me, and I didn't have to travel to them. Logistically, that breaks down a little bit in your numbers-wise, um, so you can add that into your, what I call our portion of the pie that we give back to our farmers because of paying a little bit more for what real food is. You have been working with somebody that I met very early on, Linda, Linda Hetzel. Um, tell me a little bit about how you started working with her. I think I might have even sent her to you because I knew you worked with those kinds of food. And then, you know, how do you build that supply chain with farmers? How do you find your farmers? Well, um, build, building it and, and finding those farmers nowadays isn't quite as difficult, I don't think. Uh, we've got a lot of people um, doing urban farming. But uh, when, we were, when we were getting started, it was a lot of uh, working with Cultivate, Gibbs Road, Juniper Gardens. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, I came up, at, uh, graduated from Bishop Meage. So, you know, it's a Catholic school with Catholic charities. We had to donate some of our time for, for graduation. And, and when we did that, uh, I was lucky, lucky enough to understand that some of the programs that Catholic charities were doing at that time. So it was very easy for me to understand that Roots for Refugees was right up my alley. Right. And, and, and we were starting around the same time, you know, so I thought the partnership was was very sound. We could really stand behind each other and support each other. And again, this is a, a an economy that, you know, 2009 wasn't the greatest. No, it was terrible. To, uh, explain what Roots for Refugees is for those who just briefly who don't know. So Roots for Refugees is a, uh, well, it's part of Catholic Charities, and it's an operation where uh, refugees come over to the United States. They they get supported, but they they a lot of our refugees are already uh, understanding farming or agriculture from their native land. Um, when they get over here, what, what Catholic Charities does, Roots for Refugees, uh, Juniper Gardens, they give them the tools to succeed here. And, and by that meaning language, uh, how to sell at markets, what grows in our climate, um, and gives them an, uh, the tools that they need to be here. It's a fantastic program. I have done some, some reporting on that. And it's been building over the years. Um, oh, yes. And Cultivate's very involved. They're doing a lot of the teaching and helping them with the bookkeeping and taking them to the market and teaching them how to sell at our markets. Yeah, the business side, you know, understanding your market and what price points that you can get for what grows and then what what um, your consumer wants and, and what they will pay for it. Th- that's all economics and that's not just farming. And, and that that's something that you don't get taught when you're when maybe you're coming over from Laos or you're coming over from from different countries. It wasn't like that. But here they, they give you the tools to succeed. And, uh, you know, what's been great with that partnership is we've been able to follow a few of our, our farmers from that program. And once they've graduated, have become full-time farmers with us too. 
and two of them this year were contract farmers for us. So, wow. and contract farming something new to us is uh, we're trying to figure out how to look at utilization of resources and being more efficient in all of our processes and what are true costs of the food that we grow. Does that mean you request what they grow if they're a contract farmer, or how does that work? So this year we we, uh, we worked with Baker Creek Seeds. Uh, we donated seeds to our farmers. We asked them to grow it. Um, with growing that, we took on half the responsibilities. Hmm. So if it did not grow, we paid for half the resources. If it did grow, well, it was awesome. <laughs> we, we will, you know, we worked together and, and we figured out that since we asked them to grow it, we were going to take everything that they grew and then we were going to push it through our restaurants oh, wow. at a price point that we agreed upon before the season even started. So they knew what they were growing, how much they were growing, and what market they were already selling it at before we even started. Is that a, a recent development in Farm to Table, or has that been around for a while? Um, you know, I'm not real sure. It's just hmm. something that we we started doing um, just last year. I, I, I haven't seen any other programs quite like it, but I'm sure that there's other guys out there doing what we're doing. Sure. It's a fairly unique program, though, to this area, from what I can tell. Um, and it must be really gratifying to see the the growth of starting out with an idea, starting out with somebody who doesn't know how to farm, maybe in our culture here, and then what it becomes down the road. That now they're regular suppliers for you. Um, so are you are you having deep friendships there, and are you trading like? Uh, Tips on how to cook this vegetable or how to use this vegetable or herb? Well, the, the, the deep relationships, I think we're already there. You know, okay. the, those, those bonds were formed. Um, learning about what somebody else sees with those ingredients and how they would go about putting it on their table, yeah, you share knowledge completely. Hmm. Uh, I mean, you'd be a fool not to. Uh, some of these ladies, they can cook anywhere. They're, they're incredible. And, and But again, to see how they view a vegetable and how they would utilize it and the techniques that they would use. Can you give us an example? Well, the ong choy, which is uh, water spinach, um, using it with raw garlic um, and, and not necessarily sauteing that raw garlic straight in like you would in a French technique, but, right. but more of a, with a little bit of the water so that it stays uh, almost hot. But, but just a little, Yeah, but just mellows out just a little bit. That counters the bitter in the stem on the yong choy. And if you don't do it that way, you get the bitters in the stem, which is pretty pretty neat. I mean, I like bitters, and, and I would have never have known that, and I think I've cooked it a couple of times just trying to figure it out. But to have somebody do it in that way, in the way that they saw it, uh, again, opens up new ideas for you. And then when it gets to your menu, is it still called Ong Choi? And, are, you know, how much explanation and marketing goes into getting somebody to understand what this vegetable is and maybe ask for it? We're still trying to figure out education and marketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, honestly, I don't like to change names on things to make uh, somebody else accept it. Um, but I do understand that 
we have to do things to present other things that may be uh, more acceptable. So with Ong Choi, uh, I also know it as water spinach. Okay. So water spinach is a little bit more palatable because you understand the spinach part. Sure. It gives you a reference. Yeah. Ong Choi, you know, all of a sudden you're at a black sheep diner, which is a farm to table diner in the Midwest, and they're trying to serve you Ong Choi. <laughs> uh, yeah, it grew here. And it grows great here. Um, but sometimes that can be viewed as something different. And somebody who doesn't understand that could actually view that as, hey, where did he get this? Or why is he shipping in Ong Choi? No. Or even just what will I be tasting? Is this like a salad or is this like a root vegetable? Or, you know, it could mm-hmm. be anything, right? You don't know what it is. So you need a reference point. Yes, very, very much so. I like head cheese. Mm. I remember the first time that I sort of figured out farm to table, and it was way back, uh, I don't know, 1999, 2000, I had a project that I needed to do for the star. And it had to encompass other people from other parts of the country. And the question, we couldn't figure out what this story was going to be, what, what impacted all of us. And I said, in your location, are you looking at menus that have farmers on there? This was kind of new. You know, farmers were just coming into the foreground. It was always about chefs until then. Um, and so I, I learned that there were these deep stories that were kind of hidden on the menu. And I feel like that every time I come to eat at your place or a similar restaurant, that there are all these amazing stories behind it. How do you start to market some of that and let people understand that? Because I think people really are hungry for those kinds of stories that you're telling about Roots for Refugees or maybe a Prairie Birthday Farm, uh, Linda, Linda's yeah, Place, Lin- or or the market nearby you that's changed and grown. And Well, and, and, and yeah, how, how do we tell that story with Linda? I mean, I, We've been working with her for nine years, and I think as for knowledge, uh, food-based knowledge of what Midwest has to offer up in the fields and what can be grown here and what should be grown here um, and how to grow it, wow, she's just amazing. Uh, Absolutely a a wealth of knowledge. Every time I'm with her, I learn more and more and more. But now that I'm working with her, we're trying to figure out controls. You know, what do we do with the seconds and the thirds that are coming off of those, those plants and that kind of stuff? Hmm. Well, in all parts of the plants. Yeah. Too. We're, we're looking all at all stages uh, of production. How, how would this originally be used by Mother Nature to go back into the earth if it wasn't being eaten by an animal? Right. You know, so, so you look at, well, when we break it down, we understood that uh, so, some of the, the breakdowns on, on, the B's or the D's or the C's, we, we would lose, we, we were down about 35% of what was usable in that product. By the time we, we seeded, we stemmed, we cored. But what we started doing is backtracking and going, well, what can we do with the seeds? What can we do with the stem? What can we do with the core? And how do we work these back into other products? And, and as we work those back into other products, we understood that Hey, some of the stuff we can u- reutilize um, and pull pectin out of out, out of the 
the skins, um, you know, flavor out of the cores, uh, the seeds. Can we roast them and grind them and make them into flour? You know, what it, what is the absolute throwaway? And, and on her pears, we found out the only absolute throwaway was the dark spot that was a little mushy. <laughs> Couldn't figure that one out. Uh, fermentation, guys. Hey, they that, might that's, be that's a good one. Hey, help yeah. me out on that. Uh, but the stem. And the funny thing was, is the stem goes back into compost. And, and that's kind of the percentage of that pear that we really needed to go back into the earth for the carbon. So it was really neat to see how we, when, you, when you break that down from simple syrups to picklings to all these other things that we're trying to get shelf stable for her to get into the market, to, you know, for us to work together. You said earlier Farm to table was something that was naturally happening when you were working under other chefs. Was that happening when you were in France? Was that in Lyon? Or is it very different than it was here? Actually, uh, farm to table cooking-wise didn't exist for me in Lyon. Okay. Um, Which is kind of sad for me to say. Uh, I got stuck in a dungeon and I peeled carrots. Uh, I wasn't wasn't the chef. I wasn't... very rarely was I allowed on the main line to even cook. Mm. Uh, I, I prepped a lot. Um, my stories of France are a little bit different. A lot of my great stories of France are, are, are me out on my own mm. uh, going through markets and taking things home and, and discovering them myself. Uh, some of the, the restaurants in Lyon were a little expensive, so you know you couldn't really go out and spend a lot of money, especially when you're a stage that's, or intern whatever you want to call it, Working for not free. getting paid, right. uh, you know, and, and it's, it's a little bit difficult. Uh, there were quite a few times that uh, over there recognizing the ingredients that were coming through the back door was really the knowledge that I gathered in France. Hmm. Um, they were purchasing from markets. It wasn't me though. Yeah. You know, they a lot of the ingredients that they brought in, I got to break down for the chefs, which was, I thought, even better than just the final cooking. You know, get a good sear on, on, on a mushroom. Well, that's, now that I know, pretty easy. Breaking down a mushroom, cleaning a mushroom efficiently and in a timely manner, um, making sure that that mushroom is absolutely beautiful before it gets, you know, messed up. Sounds like it drove your ingredient appreciation. It really did. Uh, New York was one of those great spots for me, though, working out at Green Market hmm. at, at Union Square Cafe. We could run down there and, and work out at Green Market. Um, that that was where I got to really experience a lot, a lot of East Coast farmers and, and understanding varietal differences from each coast to coast. When I was in Portland uh, at La Berge, Luckily, we had a lot of food mongers coming through our back door, uh, fish guys, mushroom guys. So Nicholas already had his establishment of farmers, and they they pretty much delivered to us mm. instead of us having to go to the markets. And that was one of the ways that I learned how to do the logistics of farm to table was how do we make these calls? How do we how do we make menus? that didn't exist yesterday that we have to form on a fly or what is the weather patterns that are going to be this week? All of those things go into to ordering. 
um, in, in, in talking with your farmers, learning that we know that, hey, I actually want you to pick my strawberries a little later in the afternoon than I do in the morning because oh, wow. that morning dew, you know, kind of takes the, the, the sugar content and, and weakens it a little bit, whereas in the summer or in, in the afternoon, kind of bakes back in. Those are things you learn from your farmers. It's not something that I knew from a kitchen. Um, but by working hand-in-hand hand with them and their, and their families, you, you learn their little secrets. And I'm sure you do this. They come in to eat at your restaurant so that they can see what the final product is at some point. Because I've talked to so many sh- um, farmers over the years, and I'll say, wow, what a great dish so-and-so is doing with your heirloom tomatoes or whatever. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, well, I haven't, you know, they haven't seen it. They haven't tasted it. And um, I think that's a big connection that's sometimes missing. But Well, it, it is kind of missing or we're missing on how to make that connection. You know, that connection is there and it's there to be made. It's just how do we make that connection? And I think uh, through our, our farm to table movement, should you say, um, for the 10 years that I've been doing it here, some things need to evolve. And, and we need to learn that the verbiage that we use can be misused against us now. Uh, it, it, it can be tainted a little bit. Um, greenwashing. You've heard that before, I'm sure. Right. So people taking industry, taking terms that <clears throat> really are uh, about organic or natural or whatever word you choose and kind of using it for their own pr- marketing purposes. Very much so. So what we're, what we're starting to look at in the next year and f- to move forward is how do we clear that up? How do we make it transparent? How do you know exactly where your food came from? And with us, we, we put all of our farmers on our menu. We put them on our board. We put what they brought into us. Um, all, hopefully our, our staff will be able to tell you exactly what came in that day or we're taking pictures of it. We think that that transparency, that no matter what greenwashing or, or, or whatever industry wants to do with some things, if you're transparent, then, then I, I don't think that you can misrepresent. The neighborhood was such a big part of your selection for farmhouse, right? What about black sheep? Uh, again, same. Same? Same. Uh, 39th Street. Well, first of all, Cafe Allegro. <laughs> I, uh, I have to start there. Yeah, that's going back a little ways. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm old. Ah, <laughs> uh, not saying that. I'm just saying... a forebearer of farm to table as well. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And when we talk about farm to table, there's a lot of other people that were here way before us that that laid the, the footprints for us to start stepping in and, and kind of gave us a direction here in Kansas City um, that was different from the West Coast and the East Coast. Jane over at Bluebird. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. she's been doing it for a heck of a long time and, and, and day in, day out. Really, really amazing. So back to 39th Street, Cafe Allegro. Um, when Steve's, I, I call it Steve's place. Steve Cole. <laughs> when uh, Steve's, Steve Cole's place came up for rent, um, it was just one of those icons in Kansas City. It, 
it meant a lot to me because some of my friends had, had cooked there and, and that was part of the the kind of the aura about the place or, or, or the feel of man this place did a lot for Kansas City and Kansas City really woke up culinary wise because of, of a few houses in Kansas City and I, I mm. would say that Steve's was one of them the way he brought West Coast dining in, in an eye to detail and you know, wouldn't allow his cooks to to cut corners. They always had to be on, on top of everything. And to see some of the talent that's still in Kansas City that came through that restaurant. So when it came up for rent, you know, we felt lucky that, that we were able to get the spot. But in getting the spot, I, I, I panicked a little bit. Mm. It was one of those, oh, my God, what did I just do? <laughs> it's a big undertaking. Well, those are big shoes. You know, and if you're coming in to fill those shoes in a, in a house that hasn't had those shoes in a long time, you, you need to do some things pretty well. Um, but we didn't want to do the exact same thing we did at the farmhouse. And I didn't want to replicate something I did 10 years ago. Um, so we kind of looked at what farm to table was, where we were at, what we thought maybe needed to be in the industry with farm to table to keep pushing it into different parts of the industry, but also what the community up there wanted, needed, or was lacking of. And as 39th Street, there was a couple of places that had done breakfast on 39th Street that had done really well that weren't there anymore. Um, so we thought a farm to table diner. And so luckily my, my partners and I, and I say we, because it, it isn't just me, it, it's a whole group of us. Um, we decided to do a farm to table diner. And right next to it, we did a market and we de dedicated our whole market to all of our farmers. So our farmers, I like to say our farmers own our shelves. <laughs> Very catchy marketing. Hey, I'm trying. <laughs> that, that's awesome. Uh, so, yeah, the, what we're doing now is we're working with all those farmers that we worked with for 10 years. Uh, we're trying to pause perishability. We're trying to get shelf stable, and we're trying to look at different products that we can get into a system that they may not have had an opportunity to be in, in before. Talk about cost, because so often with Farm to Table, <clears throat> it is assumed that you will, you will pay more than um, – talk about the true cost of food as well mm -hmm. um what, the diner concept seems almost a little bit counterintuitive to that um whereas the farmhouse i would i would know perhaps that i was going to pay that certain price point you're talking about how, how do you make the diner economics work well um you know you look at margins and as a business everything's about profit and loss and, and margins and I always looked at it as a whole pie, 100%, and how I, I chose to do my pie pieces. And some some companies look at pie pieces as healthy as margins in 18s and, and 20s and, and 13s. You know, um, we look at a healthy company as maybe being a little bit more social uh, in, in the understanding and not, not so much greedy. So the give back is a little bit more and we take a little bit less. But in doing that, we still have to have our lights on, and I still have to pay good wages so that our, our, our family's healthy. Um, so those, those wedges you don't mess with. 
You know, you try to grow those. What you try to do is be smarter on everything else. Efficiencies, waste. Waste, yeah. And for 10 years, I've been focused on waste. You know, how, how do we be more efficient? How, how do we get more out of? How do we make this more sustainable? How do we compete with those bigger guys that, that don't necessarily have the, uh, the ideals that we do? Economy of scale, you usually don't have in a farm-to-table restaurant. So how does that also, the lack of that huge volume, do you find that a barrier or can you figure, again, how to manipulate those pie pieces to make that work for you? I think you can manipulate to a certain point, but yeah, there is a barrier in that. Um, one of the ways that we looked at breaking down that barrier is looking at the full food system. Um, from where do we get our food to how is it produced to how does it get to your plate. And we have found that if, if we can be a little bit more productive on the scale side, that, that we can drive down costs. So uh, we, we did a restaurant in Maryville. Uh, it's a, it's a farm-to-table steakhouse up there. But in Maryville, I'm, I work with farmers of scale. And I say of scale, meaning not necessarily one acre, but maybe 1,500 acres. That's a big leap. Yes. Yes. So when we go into those fields and we start looking at the 30%, what they're calling the 30%, I kind of chuckle at that one. Um, what, what is what they call waste in the field or stuff that doesn't have a market to be going to is the truth of it. Um, when we look at that, we start looking at price. And, and we've noticed that by working with some of the farmers up there, we're pulling enough data to understand that we can get things processed by human hands and into the market under commodity by scale. So local can, so big question for me for years has been how big can local get before it's not really local anymore? And it can get larger is what I'm hearing from you. If you can figure out how to work the well, system. I, I think, you know, local has its own meaning to a lot of different people. Um, we look at local, we look at regional. R regional's bigger to me. Um, I don't think that because this rice growers in, in southeast Missouri, which is fabulous for rice growing and great rice. Really? Martin oh, rice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. oh, my goodness. Really good. And, and Exactly. Wow. How many of us knew that? <laughs> how, how many people knew that that is incredible rice? Well, luckily, we caught on a few years ago. But <laughs> I, I would never want to not have his rice just because I'm local. Mm. And, and if I do that, that limits us so much. But if we can start looking regionally, and, and by regionally, start removing the lines that are drawn as in uh, borders and, and that kind of stuff, really look at regions as in how long does it get from point A to point B? You know, it, once we start figuring out more regional foods and, and how, how to supply ourselves regionally, um, I, th I, I think that that scale comes into that play and then we, we're, we're starting to put our pieces back together hmm. on price. Mm -hmm. And not having to order from a giant food catalog. Very much so. Uh, but I'm not saying that we won't need to, you know, 
we need both sides. We, mm. we need commercial growers. We, we, we need all sides. If, if we uh, decided to go to small-scale farming, local, small, half the world would starve. But we also need to understand that when we say half the world would starve, who is in this world? Who are we feeding in this world? And, and, and what are we feeding them? So that's bigger questions on that one, too. When you came back to Kansas City to start and do, was farm to table with the resources and farmers there just untapped? Or has it really evolved and easier to find those farmers now? It's always been here. It was just a matter of communicating. And I think in some respects, technology, if I can jump in here, because I remember trying to call, and you, you probably remember this too, Michael, trying to call chefs, uh, I'm sorry, farmers, before they ever answered cell phones. Now that we have cell phones and computers and all these things that we don't really typically think of as farmers having, but now that they're actually using that technology, it it helps that process. Oh, by far. And, and, and especially for a younger um Younger chefs, I, I'm not one for computers, but younger chefs, boy, they can really utilize that as a tool. And with giving that tool to our farmers, we now have direct communication. That, that's pretty cool, especially with knowing what's out there, what's available, when it's available. Um, those are big things to designing menus, costing out menus. All, all of that. Standing in the field and telling you how it looks. Very, very right? much so. Or, or and sending you a picture, probably. <laughs> right. And there's quite a few farmers that are learning how to market themselves with uh, pictures and, and online stuff. Mm. That, that they're really getting into that and showing you the whole of, of their life and lifestyle, uh, which is really interesting. It is fascinating. And they're realizing that they are... Some, something to be marketed as well, you know, that people can come to them directly or that even if they're just they're working with chefs and restaurants, that's a big driver for what they're doing. Um, so it becomes a network, I think, of technology that's helping spur agriculture, which we don't think of as very uh, technology intensive, at least at the uh, the level you're talking about, where food is still whole and not processed and... Well, yeah, and I think, you know, once we make those connections of the, this is the consumer and this is your grower, it doesn't really matter who's cooking that food as long as you know who who you're getting it from. You know, so if we can be that conduit from our guests to our farmers, I, I think that that is a lot more sound. Plus, when you understand who who you're making that check out to and what it actually is going for, it's not so bad writing those big checks. It's easier if you think somebody's going to send their kid to college than if you're or, sending it to a Boy corporation. Scout camp, you know, <laughs> and, and he needed new shoes for for track, or you know, we could go on and on about everything I hear from what I call my family. I was going to say uh, you're not partners. making up these examples, are you? Oh gosh, no, no. no. The, the, this is real, and this is why we do it. Is you know, how do we how do we get that fourth season for our farmers to where they aren't shutting down for three months? Well. We know that Mother Nature's changing. We know that, that systems are changing all around us and, and that growing conditions are changing too. So maybe if we start looking at different fruits and vegetables for that fourth time, maybe if we look at different crops or, or managing high tunnels, hoop houses, extending, mm. how do we get that Root income sellers. back in there? Yes, very much so. And I, I constantly will go back to 
what was my grandmother doing? Mm-hmm. You know, because, well, they lived for a pretty dang long time. <laughs> <laughs> they figured and, something and, out. And, and, there, you know, there wasn't a whole bunch of health problems with them. You know, my, my great aunt, 93 years old, mm. smart as a whip. You know, it was just, but different. She she ate canned goods, but she canned her goods. Mm-hmm. You know, so preservatives and, and fillers and all that kind of stuff what wasn't about there. So I, I constantly will go back to what did we do before this time? What did we do for this, before this time when we started accelerating the processing of foods? You know, where are those breakdowns and why did we do it? Because we had to do it. You know, we, I don't believe that we, our system has evolved as an evil thing. I think our system has evolved into what we've evolved it into. Now it's time to maybe correct and, and change some things, but it's not all wrong. Maybe just some things have been forgotten. Very much so. I think we have, this is just an observation, but as Americans, this interest in um, making things efficient. And I think that's what sort of happened with the food system. We didn't know the intended, unintended consequences, however. So that's kind of, you know, sometimes you'll read books. I'm sure, Michael, you've had people say this to you. It's a big conspiracy. No, I don't think it was a big conspiracy. I just think it's sort of it happened because we were striving to sort of make things efficient. Yeah. yeah, and I um, could never tell my grandfather, that, you know, oh, you grew soybeans and you used this on your fields. You were evil. You did wrong and you meant to do wrong. No, that's so disrespectful. My grandfather thought he was doing right by everything he did and, and was doing the best that he could for his family to put food on the plates and, and do those kind of things. So, you know, for me to say that he was wrong, no, I, I'm out here saying, and we just need to correct the things that we thought were right at the time. And, and get it more right and, and a little bit more balanced because the balance is what's off. One of the things that you've been um, very instrumental in, I think, helping get going here is a food hub. Explain to us what that is and what your role is in that food hub. So so with the food hub, um, you know, it, it's it's an interesting idea of a co-op between farmers and farmers wanting to to be able to get paid fair prices but in return control their systems to where they aren't aren't selling to a middleman that that'll put the markup on it and then distribute it to the market what the co-op has done is taken away the middleman and become that themselves they do the sales they do the marketing uh they do the selling and, and the setups so they, they've taken on a whole other side of just farming. So is farm to table a movement, a trend? It's certainly not a fad. Hmm. I don't think it, it, it's any of that. It, what it is is the right way. Um, as soon as we, we get away with trying to label or, or, or put verbiage on it and just accept that the way that we eat what goes into our body is who we are. Uh, it's really kind of simple. Now, the the problem part of this is how do we get the right food to the people? H- how do we make that uh, more readily available? 
how how do we give you or say Lindsay the opportunity to make a choice of something healthy as opposed to maybe something that that has been really processed um, right now there's not still not a whole lot of opportunities and choices out there you know we are growing a little bit here and a little bit there but I think as we go it needs to become more of the norm and not so much as uh, something that could be called a trend or, or a fad. Do you see that happening in the next five years, ten? It's inevitable. I mean, if, if we don't, well, we already know what's happening. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of one of those things that you can sit there and say, is uh, the weather changing? Uh, is there climate change? Well, in my life, I've seen it. So I, I can make my own decision of yes. So in, in my life, what have I seen with food? So, yeah, I think that we aren't, it's not going anywhere. And if it does, then we're all pretty much in trouble. You feel like we live in a time where people very much care about what they're eating and where their food comes from to the point where, you know, you could make a joke about how serious some customers get about it. What was what was the chicken's name? I think it was a Portlandia episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. One of the funniest. Yeah. Right. Uh, do you notice that when people are coming into your restaurant? Is that why they come see you? No, or? less and less so. I, I think now uh, since we've been around about 10 years, it's just – I think people trust in us and, and, and understand that what, what we do and with, with the farmers we work with, there's no longer as many of those questions, mm. uh, which are still kind of funny questions. <laughs> really? <laughs> do you get funny questions? Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, right now um, it's trying to keep up with all of the diets mm. and, and not fad diets necessarily, but all the health concerns and diets that have been oh. caused by our food system that now we're having to correct with whole foods. It, it, it's, you know... Um, you think about that when you're creating dishes, like this will go well for people who can't have this? Well, I have to. It's all part of hospitality. Hmm. When you walk into my house, you know... You want to be as hospitable as you can um, and, and make sure that everybody's comfortable in their own skin mm-hmm. and they don't feel out of place because maybe they can't have something or, or they're a little bit different in this. We're all different. We all have these little idiosyncrasies in us. And so some of us have food idiosyncrasies. <laughs> and, and What's the so, biggest ingredient you feel like you need to have some menu items that don't have this? Right now, Gluten. Gluten, uh, sourcing flour um, has been very difficult for us. The mills, you know, understanding what's run through a mill and what got run through a mill before your stuff got run mm. through that mill. And, you know, these are things that we we don't take lightly because I, I do have a, quite a few friends that ha- have these bad food allergies or, or, or food symptoms or, or, or problems. Sensitivities. Yes. Uh, it's... As we keep going, I see it getting worse. Really? Uh, very, very much so. Very much so. Um, gluten might seem like an obvious one to some. Is there a food sensitivity you are seeing that surprises you that you're seeing more and more? Um, you know, gluten and dairy. Dairy's a big one. Um, we're learning more and more about dairy uh, 
antibiotics, what's used, what's, what's promoted through the milk, but also we're learning, I'm learning a lot more uh, uh, through our friends and partners of my farmers of goat's milk. And, mm. and so we've started looking at, at cooking a lot with goat's milk. And by cooking with goat's milk, uh, a lot of people that are can't have dairy can't have goat's milk. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our recipes... Um, are working with Janet at Borgman's Dairy. And I got to say hello to Janet. Janet. She's <laughs> uh, great. She's incredible. Um, but she's been bringing in product, and then we've been utilizing that product to to feed everybody. Oh, wow. So um, lemon curd made with goat's milk. Caramel made with goat's milk. Oh, her I mean, seriously. to die for. Really? Yeah. So we, we're now Caramel not only carrying it on our, our shelves, but we get to cook with it in our market or in the diner because we're right next door. Uh, we want to make sure, again, hospitality, that when you come in, that you're not ever singled out. You get the same menu as everybody else. You don't get a special menu. You don't get, oh, I only have two options or, you know, you don't you don't feel like you're special in any way or not special in any way. You're just there with the group. With everybody else. With everybody else. And that's really part of the hospitality is... It, it, you shouldn't go out to eat and be concerned about how people are going to treat you. But so many people, I'm sure, feel like they have to or worry that they're going to make the kitchen upset. Or and, and it is hard because we get into people that are set in menus that, again, are not set to what Mother Nature has given you. So they, they don't know how to expand. They don't know how to move with it. They don't know how to to change it up right in the middle of, of dinner service. How do we wipe down our line and make sure that we are gluten-free right now? Mm. How, you know, how, how does this happen? Um, luckily, I've pushed on my guys enough in the 10 years that they, they're all real good about it. <laughs> this um, is a, a big topic, a lot going on with it. Um, you're working very hard to look down the road to make the food system better. And why do you do that? That's We got into that one the other day. That's a deep one. I'm prompting you a little bit. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Uh, you know, as, as I was saying the other day, is I, I don't have any children. So for for most people, they would say, I, I want my children or I want what, – what we want is – future generations to be able to enjoy the same things that we did or have the opportunities that we did to, to be able to expand uh, the culinary arts or my career, um, my profession, to not limit us to what we can do. And as the world opens up to us, we shouldn't look at closing things down. And we also shouldn't look at, at, at manipulating or monetizing some of it. There's a little bit of, of, of faith, I think, that kind of goes into this too. Um, uh, I, being American Indian, believe that uh, I may be coming back to this place, so I need a place to come back to. And when I come back, I would still like all the tools that I left here to be here to be able to play with. So Responsibility. We all have responsibility. We're, we're, we're the keepers of this planet, and it, if we think that, that we have more than one shot, then good for you, but we may not. So I would rather err on the side of not and make sure that we're good than err on the side of uh, 
well, we can do this and we can do that and we can do this and we'll get another shot at this and we'll get another shot at that. I think our shots are, are, are getting limited. We look at everybody and everything is in stressing points right now. So with everything being in a stressing point right now, this could be a good time to start reimagining the way that we actually should do food and the way that we can do food. So this is actually, I believe, giving us an opportunity to look at a system that's there and maybe reimagine that system the way it needs to be or make the corrections and the changes right now to make sure that it's there for our future. Lindsay and I thank you for our kids. We need people like you out there working on it. Yeah, and it is coming faster, but that, you know, at least we know it. Yeah. You know, so great. We we know it. We know the harm. We know the effects. Let's now now do we can kind of get in front of this instead of staying behind it and, and, and trying to correct things from when it's broken instead of breaking it. Right. Yeah. Michael, thank you so much. It's been very, very enlightening. Lindsay, did you learn anything? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, it's so fascinating to me. The menu is the last step in a very long and thoughtful process. Right. Yes. Uh, and as I get older, the longer and more thought the, that process is. Mm. Um, as a younger chef, we got to play pretty quick. You know, I could come up with 40 ideas in 40 seconds. <laughs> uh, did they all make sense? No, <laughs> not at all. But they were ideas. Uh, now we give it a lot more thought and uh, maybe 32 of them weren't really responsible. Food for thought next time you sit down at a restaurant. Absolutely. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Michael. Thank you.